0: Hi and welcome to the latest episode of Human Conversations with Pat and today I'm absolutely delighted to be talking to Carmen García, a social entrepreneur, second generation Filipino migrant and founder of a really important um, organisation in Australia, Community Corporate Um, and as we approach uh, World Refugee Day I think this is a really important conversation to have so thank you for joining me Carmen and welcome.
1: Thanks, Pat. It's great to be here.
0: Tell us about Community Corporate. Where did that spring from for you?
1: Oh, look, I think there were two real catalysts for the launch of Community Corporate. One was really wanting to focus on the role of work and how I personally believe it's at the core of human dignity. And this is something I witnessed firsthand from my mother, who was a Filipino migrant with um, a practicing solicitor, and then having to come to Australia and not having her qualifications or experience recognized. She had to start from the bottom and witnessing that in the way that had an impact on her sense of purpose and dignity, I think really impacted on me and Throughout my career, I've seen these unacceptable employment rates for refugees in particular. There's a study by the Australian Institute of Family Studies that says only 6% of refugees are employed after six months of arrival in the country, and that only increases to 25% after two years. So I guess I'm the type of person that, you know, I'm not going to be a a bystander. I felt like I had to dig in and, and find a solution. And I guess the second part of it was, Throughout my career, I really found there is an alignment with Corporate Australia, wanting or having that desire to really be inclusive and be that socially, globally responsible citizen, but they don't know where to start. How do you access this cohort? How do you build that capability? And hence my my, uh, social enterprise community corporate is about really bridging the two together, making those connections and creating impact for all.
0: And I love that you've, you know, to the data about the unemployment rates because we're living in an unusual time where in Australia there's, you know, such a focus on skills shortage and low unemployment and yet everyone focuses on the headline rate, you know, 3.9 or, you know, just on around sitting around 4%. But when you do the effort of digging through the data, you go, that is not the experience of the people you work with as well. That is not the experience of refugees, migrants, youth, and women, their unemployment rate is significantly higher, but no one talks about data. Like it's just buried in the ABS reports. And we all run around, you know, sort of going the sky's falling down, the sky's falling down, unemployment is really low, but it's not like that for everyone.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And and the I guess it they are put often in the too hard basket. I think that often, you know, employers talk about wanting to hire for values and attitude and So many HR professionals say, as long as they're a cultural fit, we can teach skills. But the actuality of that is it's considerate of, but they still need local experience and we still need local references and we still need and we still need. And I guess our approach at Community Corporate, working with all those diversity groups is how do we get employers to build confidence, to look beyond the pages of a resume and really look at the person Um, Many of our refugees and migrants that we've put into employment have an astonishing retention rate, around 89% nationally, because they want to work, they want to learn. And this is plan B, coming to Australia and having to start their life again. You know, this is the second chance. So they want to maximise it. And I often do see they put in so much more effort to to really make it work and and build that sustainable and meaningful employment with our um, business partners.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Um, And we mentioned that World Refugee Day is coming up soon. Um, What does the day mean for you and the work that you do and how does it align with your focus area?
1: I think for for many people, World Refugee Day is about, um, you know, an opportunity to celebrate the courage and resilience of refugees and displaced people all across the world. I guess World Refugee Day is every day at community corporate. um, And it's really giving... You know, particularly corporate Australia and businesses, the opportunity to reflect and remember that you know no one chooses to be a refugee, no one chooses to be forced to flee their country for reasons out of their control, and just understanding if we were in that position, what would we need, what would we want, and hope that our welcoming community offered to us. And you know, Kat, I think I liken it to COVID often in that you know we were forced into crisis, no one saw it coming. And the way that, you know, people reacted to that is very much like that survival mode of refugees. So I feel that, you know, World Refugee Day does enable us to have those deeper conversations. But I'm really proud that there are many corporates in Australia that use this opportunity to reflect on what they're doing and, you know, change the behaviour, give themselves that check-in point as to what they can do better and turn that good intention into real action. Uh, I don't know, I won't tell you too much, but one uh, employer, IKEA Australia, will be using the 2023 World Refugee Day to make an uh, amazing announcement in their journey of um, refugee integration into their workforce. And I think that's also because they see World Refugee Day is when corporate champions should stand up, take the spotlight and share their success stories to hopefully encourage the narrative amongst others.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And I love that you can, you know, bring to light these these organisations that are doing it for more than one day. Like use the day for a spotlight, but it's, as you said, it's every day for most people, particularly if you are doing the work you do or if you are a refugee. And it's a bit similar to International Women's Day in the, you know, cynicism that comes out then. There's a lot of performative celebrations, you know, one day morning teas and stuff like that and then life reverts back to normal and and nothing happens. So you know it's such a good opportunity to raise the profile of the issue but not stop the hard work that needs to be done. Let's talk about the barriers. So what you know obviously you're at the coalface of the employer as you said who have the desire and want to get started but then there's so many that just seem to you know put it in too hard basket. What do you think are the real Current barriers we're still needing to overcome in Australia with genuinely increasing the number of employment opportunities for refugees and migrants.
1: Yeah, look, Kat, you know, to, to be really honest with you, you know, unconscious bias that underpins some of the assumptions of employers, particularly when we're looking at recruitment, is really still the biggest barrier. Yes, our refugees and migrants may um, be, you know, building that confidence in English, Um, They might have transport barriers, but on the whole, the biggest barrier is really building that capability and confidence in businesses to understand. And often my job is busting myths that if they hire a refugee or migrant who's already a resident in Australia, no, they do not have to sponsor them and be guarantor of their visa, their permanent residence. So there's simple things like that that I think is really important if employers want to move you know, out of their comfort zone, they need to build the knowledge and capability to actually support them. And that's also, you know, relevant when you think about local references and local experience, not understanding the transferability and how to actually support that mapping. I guess that's a big part of what we do at Community Corporate to really demonstrate to employers the experience and skills or overseas qualifications refugees and migrants have and how that does meet the requirements of the role or the position description um, and the opportunity for them to test them out based on competence rather than formal accreditation. I think this is where we love challenging conventional processes to really get people to think outside the box and see that return on investment if they're prepared to, you know, be flexible.
0: Mm. And I, I love that you've leaned straight into that myth busting because there are so many stereotypes that get put forward. And then the other one I often see is uh, language barrier definitely the highest. And then almost as a result of that I often see people go, Well, we'll test run them in some low skilled work. And you it just it's such a loss because often people have such high skills and capabilities and they're not even Given the go at a level that you know correlates to their abilities. Okay,
1: oh, I can give you a beautiful example recently here in South Australia. Um, an amazing um, Afghan man who we met uh, because we're really focusing on the IT and digital industry at the moment with, with with their skill shortages. And you know he has been unemployed since he's been in Australia, knocking on two years. Um, a little bit of Uber Eats driving here and there. And, but he had software engineer qualifications. He's been data analyst in his country. It's not just a qualification. We're talking about two, three years experience, never got interviews, never got jobs, didn't even get a chance. We were really lucky that South Australia's largest private employer gave him an opportunity through our coaching and training support model, where he was given a 12 week cadetship in an IT specialist role. After the 12 weeks, he was automatically renewed for another 12. And I'm really <laughs> proud to say now he's been offered a permanent full time job at $90,000 as an IT wow. specialist. So I just think, you know, when employers look at that and that result, um, and also the role of government thinking about. The tax, uh, payroll tax that will be generated compared to a $19, $20 hour Uber driver or picking tomatoes job to actually Mm. utilising his skills. The the dividend and flow on effect for all of us is is quite significant and I'm so proud of of him and his hard work. Like it takes work. We're not saying that this Mm. is easy and I do want to make that really clear. But when we find the right refugee or migrant candidate and the right employer and we're all in it together we know it can work and so we've proven that it has
0: wow and what is it that the employer does that helps them to have the right you know culture and behavior and mindset to make it work like there is there something sort of in the secret source that makes that right employer for the the fit
1: um There's lots of different elements. I think that one of the the biggest mistakes is, you know, the the CEO or C-suite team say we want to hire refugees and migrants and then Mm. that really isn't trickled down to the local hiring manager or people and culture teams. Um, We've developed a great framework here at Community Corporate which we call Cultural Inclusion Commitments, KICKS. And so it's not about a new cultural diversity plan or new targets. It's just about integrating and understanding when we're talking about inclusion, what does cultural inclusion actually mean? And we've seen the best success really from employers that have an open-mindedness to still get the result or merit measure that they need, but doing it in a different way that still has meaning um, and benefit for all. So I feel employers that are open-minded, that they're willing to work with us in a genuine partnership, um, we've really seen that you know we can we can get the results that they need. There are employers that I feel often come to us, cat, honestly, as the last resort. They've they've advertised mm. everywhere, so they think, but they only use seeks. That's a whole separate issue of inclusive yep. uh, advertising. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and and they've they've gone to the you know the government services. They've gone to labor hire, and they really really can't feel. And then they come to us, and it's very much. Mm you know, uh, under duress, under pressure. So they no longer have that foresight of flexibility versus employers that come to us as part of their whole recruitment strategy where we can supply candidates to consider amongst everyone else. Because we do believe our candidates can compete on merit with the mainstream. Mm -hmm. It's just a bit of extra support from our end and then getting the host employer ready through cultural confidence training and, and these kick frameworks that we build into their business.
0: Mm. I, I love that um approach that you've articulated and um, there is there's just so much last minute thinking and then it's almost like it even devalues the outcome for them because they're like well i got you because there was no one else and that is not the right way to start any of these relationships is is like a you're better than nobody and that's just horrible to put someone in that that place of disrespect but to start intentionally and say we're going to do this properly it just changes the whole dynamic of the relationship from the beginning and it's it it also says what do I need to do differently to make this work whereas there's so much you know in current DNI practice in Australia so much deficit-based sort of thinking of what do I need to do to help you to fit into my company because you're probably going to have some gaps so I think it's sort of you're articulating the way in which it's a two-way street I think.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, you know, I think what's really interesting is, you know, some um, employers, you know, they really need to have the basics. And when they talk about unconscious bias, some companies even say, oh, you know, look, to be honest, we probably have conscious bias. And, you know, being a courageous person myself, I call them out and I say, you realize conscious bias is racism and discrimination. And I encourage <laughs> others to call it out. Because if you know that you're creating bias or barriers because of someone's cultural identity, that's discrimination. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard this. So many people say, I'm so welcoming of, you know, newcomers to Australia. Every time I get into the Uber, I ask my foreign driver where he's from. And, you know, I always say, do you ask mainstream-looking drivers? Well, no. And, you know, and, and I, I heard this story from one of our African young men and he said, you know, they kept asking me, where are you from? Where are you from? And I was born in Australia. And he said to me, Carmen, can you put into your training, if mum's African, and dad's African, then baby's going to be African, no matter what side of the equator we're born on, like some of that real basic stuff. And I just thought, oh, you know, we take it for granted, because we live and breathe cultural diversity every day. But these are the kind of frank conversations that we need to be having with corporate Australia and people in charge of hiring to really break the bias. That that really is what is holding back innovation because they're Mm -hmm. not open to the ideas and the different perspectives that could actually build their business growth and opportunities because they are still, no matter what they say, focused on a one-size-fits-all and the perfect peg in the round hole.
0: Mm, absolutely. And you have leaned into that cultural identity conversation. I think it's still so fraught in Australia. We're so immature at handling the, you know, what? how do you identify? What's your cultural background? You know, sometimes people say they do it with good intent, like you say, but it's such an rising conversation when, when it's mishandled. I just don't think we've taught people how to talk about culture. And, you know, I love that you've identified as a, you know, second generation, um, you know, born to a Filipino migrant and even I think we haven't handled second generational conversations in Australia and, and, you know, some of us can elect to reveal that and others can't, as you just said, like we just have such low maturity in that cultural identity conversation in Australia, I think.
1: Yeah, we, we do, Kat, I have to agree and, you know, what's the most disappointing thing is Australia was built on the backs of migrants and we've kind of forgotten that. I mean there are some you know very interesting migration reviews um, being undertaken at you know federal level looking at you know permanency pathways and, and you know really trying to make it easier and equitable for all but um, you know we've got a long way to go and I think that you know re- realising the importance of our history and that migration story and how that will connect to our future prosperity is something I do think we all need to be much more active on in really building up our knowledge and understanding of diversity as a productivity dividend that Australia has reaped the benefits of of, for many, many years.
0: Mm. And it's a migration story that goes back over 200 years. You know, there's a way that we've got to talk about it that recognises and connects to our First Nations people as well because it's quite ironic when you get told by people who have, yeah, whose families have been here for a few hundred years that you're, you know, you are or aren't an Australian. And you go, well, what does it mean to you? So, yeah, I think, as you said, there's a lot of work to be done. We also do a lot of culture denying. It's something probably because I sound and look, you know, Australian. I often get called that when, if, you know, if I identify with my cultural background, people go, oh, but you seem so Australian. I'm like, it's just immature to tell people that they can or can't be identified as Australian depending on how they look and sound and these sort of very, um, you know, sort of objective criteria.
1: Yeah, I think, look, you know, I think that Australia really compares itself to other countries like the US and says, we're doing better. But that's not holding us to our own standards and, and benchmarks. And it does come back to that knowledge and being informed. I think that, you know, it's really important that, We have to be welcoming and give people that sense of identity and belonging that they too can feel Australia is home. And there's been some amazing First Nation elders in the way that they have customised, you know, welcome to country where they talk about it's Mm. also it's their land but it's now our land and how we as a collective society can really feel that we can set up roots and, and call Australia home. Um, And I think that there's a real great correlation around, you know, First Nations and migrants because both have felt they've had to forego that sense of country and land and identity. Um, So we're really looking at some opportunities to work closely around initiatives across both areas. Um, First Nations Indigenous work isn't our area of expertise, but we're really looking to work and partner with those cultural experts in that space.
0: Yeah, and it's just, it's the... Right and respectful way to do it is in that partnership. So given everything we've just talked about a curly question, but um, Australia, are we, do we still have a racism problem or not? Have we improved enough to say that we've, it's not a problem anymore?
1: I definitely think unconscious bias is still highly prevalent, particularly in the context of workplaces. I I definitely do. I don't know if I'd call it a problem. I'd definitely call it a challenge. We still do have a challenge in Australia in being genuinely accepting and understanding what it means to be a cohesive community. Um, I think that, you know, ultimately we do have a very successful multicultural story but do I think Australia should and could do better? Then Kat, my answer would be absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'd have definitely agree with you on that. And you've and given a very calm um, and logical analysis of the situation, I think. Um, before we wrap up, I know you also work with, um, you know, many other people and, and youth is a category I love to talk about as well. What, in your experience, is the work that needs to be done to see youth unemployment increased in Australia as well.
1: Look, I think similarly for youth, the reason the kind of diversity and inclusion cohorts that we work with at community corporate are refugee, migrant, mature age women returning to work and youth is because they all have that perception of a gap or lack of experience, local experience on their resume. Um, and again, I think it going goes back to looking at the individual and their attributes and characteristics that they can take into a workplace and how we can actually build up their skills and capability. I think, you know, one of the things that I struggle with in Australia is a push to apprenticeships, to accredited training. Instead of actually listening to, listening to Australia um, our employers, what are the skill sets that they actually need? What are those practical skills that are in demand rather than going through and putting young people through all these certifications that don't actually land them a job or a pathway into their career. I think there is some real potential there. I do love the concept of learn and earn for young people because it does acknowledge that they are building up that capability and skill, but we do need to recognise that they have livelihoods too and they need that financial security. And often, you know, one of the key things we do find across working with young people and, and refugees is that, you know, casualized work just perpetuates this instability in their life. So with a lot of our employer partners, even though they may put a cadetship on a casual or a fixed contract, The ultimate goal is permanency and whether that's permanent part time or full time, because it's only at that point that both young people and refugees can build a routine. We can help them build a budget. We can identify the extra earnings they have to save for that car or put the the deposit down on their own bigger house to support their family. These conversations are all connected to both vocational and non-vocational issues that Mm -hmm. we work with and we work with the whole person and that's not different for young people. The assumption of apprenticeships and traineeships is, you know, many decades ago young people stayed with their families till they were 25, 30 years old. That's no longer the case. The cost of living crisis that everyone is facing impacts on young people even more and I think this is where I'd love to see employers really supporting that learn and earn opportunity um, and giving them a go. Because the biggest issue for unemployment for young people is they don't even get their foot in the door.
0: Yeah. And and not all young people are the same, just like with any other category of human being. I think there's a real lack of understanding the degree to which in many families that, as you said, that income of that young person is really essential to the whole family's wellbeing you know, they might be one of the first ones to be getting a job or a really essential family member bringing in an income for either themselves or even a bigger group of people. Whereas I think we've seen, you know, a lot of younger people who are from a more privileged background in Australia doing work experience or kind of like testing out working and it come from a different place. But there are many young people who really, as you said, it, it, their livelihood depends upon it, you know, food, rent, shelter, cars, transport... So that learn and earn. Are there many companies adopting and understanding learn and earn or is this a fairly new concept?
1: I think many companies do understand the fundamentals of the learn and earn model, but that, that often only equates to apprenticeships and traineeships and entry-level roles. I think what we've proven yeah. in my earlier case of my IT specialist is that we can put cadetships, we like the word cadetships, in place, and uh, we we use a twelve week paid model where they're learning on the job, mm-hmm. and they can get complimentary industry accredited plugins you know, using companies like Cisco or AWS um, um, or ServiceNow to really build those skills and then apply it in the workplace. I mean, this is this is, I guess, my fundamental concern of the skills are transferable, and the con- you know the contextualization argument is. It's not country specific. There are changes. But the contextualization of skills is also company specific. So putting someone in IKEA IT versus Accenture IT is still different. So we can plug that in and support that. That's not really a good reason in my experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so much more thinking rather than cookie-cuttering needs to be applied to this to both the company, the industry and the individual. It's not just that sort of one-size-fits-all approach. And I love that you're here to help people do it. So those employers who are genuinely minded to get it right intentionally from the beginning rather than a sort of an emergency grab for last-minute resources, I think if they hopefully find their way to work with you, they'll definitely be set up for success. any last thoughts you want to share with us um, before we wrap up? I'm genuinely appreciative of your time today.
1: Yeah, thanks, Kat. I think, look, you know, the biggest thing and message I would put out to corporate Australia and businesses is I know that sometimes there's a fear of un you know unveiling or unearthing the underbelly and people are worried about what they might do wrong. I think this is where Community Corporate has been uniquely positioned. With my background in business as well, I understand you know the triple bottom line and our approach is employer led because I genuinely believe if it, if it's not about ticking a box and we solve a problem for an employer who is happy with higher retention, then our refugee, migrant, young young person or, or woman also gets that long sustainable job and it benefits everyone. So I do encourage people, I'm here to have those Frank and Feelers conversations, but more so I'm here to partner with you to navigate through this because it is about progress not perfection and one step closer will unveil unlimited benefits and opportunities for your business so I just encourage you to start a conversation even internally and I think you'll see there is great appetite to welcome our newest Australians into the workforce in Australia.
0: Amazing all right let's together turn it into refugee year um, or the 365 ongoing days of the week and not one day and um, there's a lot of lessons in there that you've shared with us and I really genuinely thank you for it and I hope that all of our listeners come knocking on your door soon. Thank you so much, Carmen. Thanks, Sam.